On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. We've remarked a few times, Mike, as we've travelled around on the temperatures in the Holy Land and we've come to a fairly hot place now. What's the temperature at the moment? (laughs) We've just checked, David. It's three o'clock in the afternoon and it's 36 degrees centigrade out there. It is absolutely stifling in the place where we are. Having said that, we're in what seems to be a desert type environment. Not so much a sort of sandy desert, sort of Saudi Arabia type of place, but uh, a rocky desert. Tell us where we are. We're in the Judean desert to the east of Jerusalem. We're about 25 kilometres away uh, easterly from Jerusalem. In fact, as I'm looking out now, I can see a little tower right on the top of the Mount of Olives in the distance, way, way away. But our guide tells us it would take at least six hours to hike to this point where we've come. Six hours in stifling heat in an arid landscape there is literally rock everywhere we look and we're perched just right at the edge of what is called a wadi wadi kelt now wadi is a is a deep cut within the rock that has been formed over thousands millions of years as rivers have run through it where do the rivers come from well they come in flash floods from when The snow melts up on the Judean hills there to our west and the rains come down eventually through these and when those flash floods suddenly come, you do not want to be at the bottom of a wadi. You could get swept away. So this is a deep winding fissure here in the rock that runs up from Jerusalem right down, if I turn to look behind me, to the plain of Jericho. I can just see Jericho peeking out between Uh, two hills there and beyond it the plain of the river Jordan and modern day Jordan on the other side we really are in the middle of nowhere I mean as we're looking here it is very hard to see anything other than rock rock and more rock there's the the odd tree that has somehow managed to grow here I notice just down to your right way down in the valley there I mean it's way bit below there is some greenery down there yeah there is and that's because clinging to the edge of a cliff there uh, is a Roman aqueduct <laughs> that takes the water all the way down and obviously where the water leaks from the old aqueduct which it does um, it, it provides some moisture for little shrubs probably i think we call them more than trees just clinging onto the hillside there for dear life but this is an utterly arid place where i certainly wouldn't want to live and yet this in new testament times was where the main route from jerusalem to jericho went in fact we can see it down deep in the cliff that little winding path clinging to the hills going backwards and forwards winding side to side and gradually going down towards Jericho. Now, you wouldn't think there'd be any habitation here whatsoever, but what is that building (laughs) built into the rock face just down there to our left, way down in the valley? Yeah, it looks like it could fall off any minute, doesn't it? It's actually St George's Monastery, uh, a monastery that was founded in 480 AD in a period when lots of monks were coming out into the wilderness and into the desert to seek solitude and get away from the hustle and bustle of life. 
uh, and eventually some of them built communities. Now, this is obviously much more uh, modern than that. Uh, it's been destroyed over the years through things like earthquakes and invaders. And uh, the present one that we can see clinging to the edge of the cliff down there was really only uh, finished off about 1901, so just over 100 years ago. But as you said, it, it's clinging to the edge. You think, how on earth can it survive there? How on earth can it last and not fall? And there's a little narrow route that, that leads to a road, because obviously there is a road that comes out here. But frankly, the only people who come down this road now are tourists, uh, the Bedouin who come and pester you to try and buy some of their goods, and the few monks that live down there as they will come. So we really are in the middle of nowhere. It's hot. It's sticky, it's sweaty, there's nothing around. I mean, we just sat and listened, didn't we, a few minutes ago, and we heard absolutely nothing. Um, I think we heard just one bird at one point, and I think I just heard a donkey brain just then that's probably belonging to some of the Bedouin who managed to survive out here somehow or other, and, and even to, to keep a few sheep and goats. So off to the far left of us, in the far distance, just the peak of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and off to our right, just peeking between the hills, Jericho. So, so this is essentially the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Yeah, and it was the main road uh, in those days as well. So this would have been a road that many, many people came down during Bible times. Uh, I mean, for example, when David fled the city of Jerusalem from his son Absalom, when Absalom led a coup, uh, he would have come down this very road to escape from him to the other side of the Jordan. When King Zedekiah fled the Babylonians when they attacked Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, he would have come down this road. Jesus when he travelled frequently from Jericho to Jerusalem and back again, would have come down this road. There's actually a reference to it in Luke 19. So there are lots and lots of biblical figures who would have walked this road that clings to the edge of the cliff so precariously down there. And as you said down, so what, down from Jerusalem to Jericho? Yeah, absolutely. Jerusalem is at the top of the hills of Judea. Jericho weighed down below sea level, deep in the Jordan Rift Valley. The Jordan cuts through that valley and it's all below sea level. So, and it goes down to the Dead Sea, of course, which is well below um, sea level. So it's always you go down to Jericho and up to Jerusalem. So that road from Jerusalem to Jericho rings a bell. <laughs> yeah, it does, because... This is the setting for one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're set here. And you know, the first time I ever came here, the first time I ever saw this site, it brought that parable alive for me. So although Jesus is telling, if you like, a made-up parable, a, a what-if sort of story, um, it was based on a very real place. It's, it's based on this road in this sort of scenario where as you can see you know there are lots of holes in the cliffs and so on very easy indeed for robbers to hide in these very common for people to get attacked by muggers in those days which is why people normally traveled in in groups and not as individuals uh, so when jesus told this parable 
people from the south here in Judea would have definitely understood, and even those from Galilee who would have come down for the great festivals would have come down the road on the east side of the Jordan, crossed over by Jericho, and steadily wound their way up this steep, steep climb towards Jerusalem to go to the temple. Certainly if you were travelling this route on your own, Nobody would hear you. We are, you know, in the middle of what feels like nowhere. Oh, you could cry for help for a long time here and, you know, it could be some hours before the next traveller got to you. So the way Jesus tells this story is to introduce several characters who are on this road after this mugging has happened. Why don't we read the story? It's in Luke chapter 10 from verse 25 and it's a parable told in answer to a, well, frankly, a, a question designed to catch Jesus out. Let's read it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, before we go on, the very fact Jesus throws that in is a little bit of a hint that maybe he wasn't doing it and suddenly the man feels he has to sort of justify himself and this is where the parable will come in. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, but who is my neighbour? And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Were those three characters have been the sort of people that would have travelled this road? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we know that quite a number of priests lived down in Jericho. So the fact he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho means he's, he's off duty, he's been up to do his turn of duty at the temple, and he's now coming back. So the excuse of, um, I can't stop because I might get defiled, frankly, is blown out of the window. The Levite, likewise, who is also on his way back to Jericho... Um, he could have helped. He was used to dealing with animals and blood and all sorts of things. But these two religious people are just too aware of their own need to keep their own holiness and their own purity to help someone in need. Who is it who helps him? 
Well, it's the Samaritan. Yeah, one of those hated Samaritans that we've talked about in previous episodes because of that great gulf between Jews and Samaritans. So the man whom you would expect least to help in this situation is the very man who does help, the man who shows love towards the man in need. In a sense, Jesus isn't just talking about neighborliness, he's talking about love. Yeah, and uh, the thing about love is um, love gives itself when it costs you. Uh, friendship, neighborliness, yeah, it can give when it doesn't cost you. But real love, um, real love costs. It's interesting, there's several words in Greek for the word love in, in Greek. Three of them used in the New Testament out of the four. Uh, one means friendship, philia, friendship. And there's a place for that. But there's another word, agape, which is commitment love. Love which doesn't give in. Love which is your good at my expense. I find that quite a helpful um, little mantra to have today. What is love? It's your good at my expense. It's love when it costs you. And it certainly cost that guy. It didn't simply cost him in terms of the money he took out of his pocket. It cost him in terms of, well, he could, he could have been mugged. You know, this, this is robber territory. That's probably why the other two didn't stop as well. You know, not stopping here, I might get mugged as well. They've had one already, you know, they could have another of us. But love is your good at my expense. And that is exactly what the Samaritan showed. Now, the guy who asked Jesus the question, this religious expert, clearly is reluctant to give the answer that Jesus is looking for from him. You, you can feel he's almost having to choke in his throat, uh, you know, as he says, the one who had mercy on him. Because that's the only answer you can give, but he doesn't want to give it. But that's the man who showed love, the one who demonstrated your good at my expense. So Jesus here is talking about love. Jesus obviously demonstrated love as well. In fact, we hear people say, you know, God is love. But let's just explore that for a second. You know, if we're thinking about the example Jesus set when it comes to love, what can we learn from that? Well, I, I think the thing that stands out very clearly from the Gospels is that Jesus didn't simply teach about love, which he clearly did again and again. He taught about God's love. He taught about the need for us to love one another. But he didn't just teach about love. I mean, he showed it, didn't he? And again, it was... Uh, they're good at his expense. And who did he love? Not the nice people, not just people like him, not just his 12 favorite disciples, but you know, he, he loved the unlovely, he loved the marginalized, he loved those who were on the edge of society. He loved the lepers and the tax collectors and, and those whom the rest of society shunned and pushed to one side. So for Jesus, love is not something to talk about, love is something to do. Didn't he also challenge when he said, love your enemies? Yeah, absolutely. That is part of the Sermon on the Mount, where, when Jesus does this very challenging teaching. And each time he's trying to take it higher than the level of, of the teaching of the rabbis. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse uh, 43, I'll just turn to it so that I read it exactly. Matthew 5:43 onwards. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's not in the scriptures. That's what the religious teachers have turned it into. <laughs> but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be 
sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love like he does. Love unconditionally. Love not so that you hope to get something back. Love the unlovely. And do it simply because loving is the right thing to do. And you said Jesus was sort of taking what existed in terms of the rules and regulations, the law, to a new level. Yeah, although one might almost say he was taking it back to its old level. Because in those many explanations and additions that the rabbis had added to the law over the years, um, yeah, they believed you should love because God said you should love. But then, really, they were asking that question that that religious teacher was asking Jesus when he came, you know. Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus asks him the question and he recites the law like any good Jew. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, yeah, do it and you'll live. And then he asked that question, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah that, you're absolutely right, Jesus. But the real question in life is, who is my neighbor? He, he's trying to find a way out of the starkness of the command. And that's what the religious teachers had ended up doing. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will castigate them for the way that they, you know, pretend to be following God's commands and yet find ways of avoiding God's command. I noticed one of the groups that has just been visiting uh, behind us is a family group with a little child. Now, you know, you can love your child, you can love your family fairly easily, generally but loving those that you don't get on with loving those that rub you up the wrong way that's that's a different matter i mean how do we put that into practice oh um the best thing is join a local church <laughs> because there you'll find all sorts of people whom jesus has saved and there'll be all sorts of different characters and you know different shapes and sizes and interests and I can guarantee that some of them will irritate you. I can also guarantee that you will irritate some of them. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm joking there, Anna, but I'm also being serious. Because it's very easy to say you love people sitting in the seclusion of your own home reading your Bible. You really find out whether you love people out there. And there are two places. One, they're in the church where... Jesus puts you with all different types of characters and says, hey guys, learn how to love one another. Learn how to, you know, rub the corners off one another and be okay with that. Uh, and the second thing is learn how to love people by going out there into the world. You know, church very often has been a place of endless squabbles, hasn't it, uh, between people, whether they're theological squabbles or character issue squabbles. And very often those squabbles happen because we're spending far too much time navel-gazing rather than getting out there into the world and taking the love of Jesus, not just through preaching the gospel, but through demonstrating his love. Thank God there are so many Christians do that these days with things like helping people to tackle issues of poverty and slavery and all sorts of things like that. 
And one of the best ways to learn how to love is to get out there into the world and find people who are in need and start to give yourselves to them as Jesus did because love doesn't think, love does. We still live, though, in a me, myself, I culture, don't we? You know, isn't it still all about looking after number one? Well, that's the culture we live in, isn't it? Absolutely our culture. Look after, first of all, number one, then your family, and, you know, blow the rest of them. Can often be what our culture is like. And I think we have to remember as Christians, that is the atmosphere we live in day by day. It's the values we see when we watch TV programs. It's the values we see when we look at material on our various apps and so on. And we have to understand that we spend far more time in that atmosphere, the world's atmosphere and the place of work and our neighbours and so on, than we do in church. And so I think we have to be really alert and aware that, you know, what the world sees as its value, that I look after number one first, well, sorry, Jesus said you put number one last. Now, that sounds quite stark. He's not saying don't care for yourself, don't care for your family. There's plenty of scriptures where, you know, he makes plain that is our responsibility. But to stand on its head the values of the world in this time of Jesus, but also in our own culture, uh, is to invert the put number one first. That's not the way of Jesus. If Jesus had put number one first... There will be no Christians, there will be no church. Because if Jesus had put number one first, then he would not have gone to the cross. Because that certainly wasn't putting himself first. Who he was putting first there was you and me and everyone. So, big challenge for us today in the world in which we live. When Jesus said, love your enemies, who were Jesus' enemies? They were primarily the religious leaders. Interesting thing is, the Gospels seem to bend over backwards that Rome didn't have a problem with Jesus. It let him get on with doing what he was doing. He was just another Jewish rabbi to them. And it's only at the end when the religious leaders manipulate evidence against Jesus and manage to turn it into treason that the Roman governor has to act. The people who were really Jesus' enemies were the religious folk. And he could be quite ruthless with them. But... It didn't mean he didn't love them. I mean, actually, there were some of those folk, like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was uh, not only a leading rabbi, he was a leading member of the Sanhedrin, that group of 70 religious leaders who governed the life of uh, Israel on a spiritual point of view. And yet, although he was among those who would have seen Jesus as his enemy, went to Jesus one night and started to reach out to him and... Jesus didn't treat him like an enemy. He didn't say, well, listen, you know, all you lot are against me. He saw here an inquiring heart and he dealt with him as such. And the good thing is that it's pretty clear that by the end of the gospel story, Nicodemus has found faith in Jesus because he's one of those helping to bury him. Jesus obviously talked a lot about love and that must have impressed those closest to him, some of his disciples, John in particular, I think, who I seem to recall describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Yes, um, that's his common name for himself in John. And in using that, he's not, he's not being arrogant. He's not pushing himself forward and saying, of course, I was the only one that Jesus loved. Um, he's actually trying to be a little bit self-effacing and not put himself 
full center stage uh, and sort of say, of course, I was there. Uh, this happened around me, you know, as so many personalities are wont to do today. So when he tells the story and he's in it, he'll often just simply say, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> and those who needed to know would know who he was talking about himself. And, you know, how did he get that name? We simply don't know. But a number of scholars think that it was perhaps a, a pet name, almost, that Jesus had given him through something that had happened somehow or other. Uh, and that he ended up called, you know, come on, disciple whom Jesus loves. Uh, and perhaps that it was how it started, but however it started, it certainly stuck. And clearly this whole theme of love that comes out quite a lot in John's Gospel, where Jesus talks about his love for his disciples and prays for them and so on, and leads them in love, teaches them how to love. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that John, one of those closest to Jesus, one of those three particularly close friends, when it will come to the time for writing his letters, 1, 2, and 3 John, which I personally think were written by the Apostle John. Some think it was by one of his disciples later, but I don't see any need for that. The language is the same as we get in John. There's so many pointers to it being written by him. When he was now a really old man, it was probably in his 90s or something like that, and the thing is about as you get older, you know, you, you lose your sharp edge a bit, and the things that matter really do become the things that matter. And what mattered in John's letters more than anything else, he writes about it again and again, is the word love. Uh, he's the one who will write God is love. Now, sometimes people abuse that, meaning God is love, therefore I can do anything I like and he will love me. No, if something is contrary to God's word, it's contrary to God's word and no single verse can wipe that out. What he's meaning simply in context is, listen, when it comes to thinking about love, God is love. He's the supreme example of love. And uh, one of my favorite verses in 1 John, in fact, it was our wedding verse. It was the verse that my wife Liz and I had on the front of our wedding invitations and our order of service is 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. But he'll also go on to talk about, you know, love in action. So it's not just about us receiving love. That's very, very important that each of us knows we are loved. We have a father in heaven and he loves us. And let me use a stronger word. He likes us. You know, sometimes Christians can think, oh, yeah, I, I know I'm loved by God. But it's, it's sort of an academic, ethereal thing. And I'll often ask them, yeah, but do you know he likes you as well? Because that's really what love involves. Um, and he'll go on to say in chapter 3, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So it's not just about us receiving Father's love. It's about us receiving Father's love so that then we can give it out to others. And in verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Where had he learned that from? Well, he'd learnt it from Jesus, hadn't he? Who'd modelled that for him, to love in words and to love in action. And if your love is not turned into action, then frankly, it isn't love. And that's what the so-called Good Samaritan did. Absolutely. You know, just perched here on the edge of the cliff, and we need to be careful not to go over the edge, don't we? Yeah. 
and looking down to that path. And I have to say, every time I've come here, I've had to ask myself, would I have stopped? You know, it's one thing to stop in a busy high street if you see someone in need where you can get your mobile out and call for an ambulance and police. But to stop here, man, that was love as I look at that path clinging to that cliff with all those caves I can see where robbers could have hidden. Man, the Good Samaritan showed what love really was in reaching out that day. And it was the very man who, as far as Jews were concerned, shouldn't have shown love at all. He really did risk his life in the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think anyone who heard Jesus tell this story for the first time, they would have known this road. They would have walked up and down it. They would have thought, whoa, you know, that's a risky road going up and down there. What on earth was he doing setting off on his own? And they would have known that he would have risked his life in doing this. But that's what love does. Remember what I said earlier, you're good at my expense. It's funny how even the phrase Good Samaritan nowadays sometimes equates with, you know, like being a goody two-shoes. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, oh, he's a Good Samaritan. But of course, in telling this story about a Good Samaritan, the heading, the Good Samaritan, is a heading in our translation of the Bibles, of course. It's not there in the original. But this whole story about a Good Samaritan was a contradiction in terms. As far as Jews were concerned, Samaritans were bad, Samaritans were filth. Sorry, strong word, but that expresses how they felt about them. So the very idea of good Samaritan was like dry water, cold sun. Brain does not compute. It was a, an incredible story that Jesus told deliberately to get this religious teacher to face up to the reality that love is not just about saying the right words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. Anybody can say that, Jesus is saying. But if you really believe that, you'll go away from here and you'll do something about it. Well, close to the setting where that story was told, pray for us now, Mike. Lord Jesus, in this wild and arid place that was used for the setting for this story to remind us what true love is, help us to be those who love not just in words or in theology or when it suits us, but help us to be those who love in deed and in action and especially when it costs us. Help us to remember that truth that love is your good at my expense. Because in so doing, Lord, we'll be following in your footsteps and truly be your disciples. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. 
And you can hear more 30-minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB Player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.